Freedom, man. That's what it's all about. You've got to groove on freedom, like the good book says. listening to what on earth is happening this show will discuss the topics of human consciousness mind control natural law the occult and all issues that affect the freedom of the people of earth what on earth is happening will endeavor to shine light upon the darkness of our world and to offer empowering solutions to the problems we face as humanity approaches its critical moment of choice. And now, here is your host, Mark Passio. Welcome one and all, you're listening to What on Earth is Happening here on the Republic Broadcasting Radio Network. I'm your host, Mark Passio. My website, whatonearthishappening.com, the network's website, republicbroadcasting.org. Today is Saturday, July 5th, 2014. The show is live every Saturday night from 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. Eastern Time. That's 9 p.m. to midnight central. We have a good show lined up here for you tonight. I'm going to be continuing to get into my cosmic abandonment presentation, the extended version of it, and I'm going to be exploring the connection of what I call the interference theory of human origins to the current human condition. That is what we're going to be going over tonight on the show, and I think like last week, I'm going to... um, forego phone calls to just really delve into this material deeply and get through as much of it as possible. So uh, no calls for tonight's show. Maybe we'll make up for the uh, few uh, uh, no-call shows with an all-call-in show at one point in the, in the near future. Uh, I do have a couple of quick event announcements that I want to go over. The Nikola Tesla Energy Independence Celebrations for 2014 are coming at us this week. Uh, Of course, every year hosted by the Tesla Science Foundation, they um, uh, extend uh, their um, information to the public and reach out to try to make people aware of Nikola Tesla and his work and legacy and what he tried to do for humanity. And there's going to be three individual events right here in the city of Philadelphia coming up this week as part of the uh, Energy Independence Celebrations 2014. The first is a Tesla film screening and discussion on Wednesday, July 9th. Again, Tesla was born at midnight between July 9th and 10th, so these celebrations usually center around that time period uh, of the year. Wednesday, July 9th, 2 p.m. to 6 p.m. at the Free Library of Philadelphia main branch in the auditorium. The auditorium is in the basement of the Free Library main branch, which is at 1901 Vine Street here in Philadelphia. They're going to be uh, um, screening a bunch of Tesla documentaries 
followed by a uh, discussion open to the public. That's the first event. The second uh, part of the Energy Independence Celebrations will be taking place at the Independence Visitor Center uh, just across from Independence Hall. Uh, it's the Tesla birthday celebration that they do every year. And I'm sure they'll be uh, lighting uh, some Tesla coils instead of candles for Tesla's birthday. They always have a couple of Tesla coils out at the birthday celebration. So that's going to be Wednesday, July 9th, 7 o'clock p.m. through uh, uh, to the end of the evening, uh, probably around 1 or 2 a.m. in the morning, uh, def- certainly after midnight. So... Um, That's uh, at 5th and Market Streets in Philadelphia, and there'll probably be some guest speakers there as well. Uh, The third part of the Energy Independence Celebrations for this year is the Tesla Days Celebration and Lectures. That's going to be taking place Friday, July 11th from 10 a.m. all the way through to 4.30 p.m. at the Philadelphia City Institute. That's another branch of the Free Library, actually, and that's at 1905 Locust Street in Philadelphia. So those are the three events that comprise this year's Nikola Tesla Energy Independence Celebrations. For more information on this great event, you can visit teslasciencefoundation.org. Once again, for more information on the Tesla Energy Independence Celebrations 2014 here in Philadelphia coming up this week, visit teslasciencefoundation.org. Second event, I will be giving a all-day seminar, another one of my all-day seminars coming up Saturday, October 4th, 2014, from 9 a.m. to 8 p.m. at the Manchester History Center. That's at 175 Pine Street, Manchester, Connecticut, 06040. The title of the seminar is called Demystifying the Occult. Demystifying the Occult, and it's hosted by Art Capozzi again, and the advanced tickets are $25, a $25 donation. You could send a check or money order payable to Arthur Capozzi, C-A-P-O-Z-Z-I, 500 Monroe Turnpike, Suite 142, Monroe, Connecticut, 06468. The -the at-the-door tickets are a $30 cash donation. And here's the brief description of this seminar. Mark Passio, the no-nonsense teacher of streetwise spirituality, will take his guests on a journey of exploration, examining the world of the occult and its symbols. What exactly is the occult, and why should you know about it? What kind of knowledge comprises the occult? Who possesses such knowledge and how do they use it? How is occultism different from mysticism? What can the secret language of symbolism communicate? And how is symbolism being used in our everyday lives? These are some of the questions we're going to explore, mainly in the first part of this seminar. And then in the second part, as a case study uh, regarding symbolism and occultism, I'm going to be exploring the major arcana of the tarot. So that is what this seminar is all about, and it's um, really going to delve deeply into the world of the occult and its symbols. It's called Demystifying the Occult, Saturday, October 4th, all day. Doors open at 9 a.m. There'll be a preliminary presentation by Art Capozzi, and then we're going all the way through to till 8 p.m., and um, a question and answer session will follow the uh, lecture portion. I haven't exactly worked out the time scheduling yet, but I'll announce that when we uh, have that solidified. 
There's also free parking at the Manchester History Center. Just wanted to announce that for uh, people who may be driving in from out of town. So if you're in the Connecticut area in uh, October, in early October, uh, don't miss this great all-day seminar that I have coming up there. Uh, one other quick uh, uh, announcement. There is a support donation button on the whatonearthishappening.com website on the left-hand side of the page. Uh, if you feel that you've gained value from the information that I've presented here uh, on this radio show and podcast uh, and shared with people uh, freely, then uh, p- please do feel free to make an uh, entirely voluntary donation to help support uh, uh, and to spread my work. So uh, if anybody has contributed, thank you so much. And uh, if you uh, are going to contribute in the future, uh, it's uh, very much appreciated. So uh, that's that. And I want to point everyone's attention to the whatonearthishappening.com radio show page. If you click the uh, radio show tab and go to the uh, listen page, underneath the player, as always for uh, tonight's show, there are images listed, and uh, you could see uh, numeric links that you can click on, and they will bring up the images that I'll be talking about tonight. Uh, there was one image for tonight's podcast that was the the flyer, uh, the um, demystifying the occult uh, seminar, and then underneath that you'll see cosmic abandonment slides. This is the presentation I'm going to be uh, continuing today. I started it three shows ago, uh, and. Uh, You can uh, check those out on the podcast section of the website. Tonight we're going to be picking up from image number 45, uh, whereas basically where we left off last uh, week, we started getting a little bit into image 46, but I'm going to go back one slide and just take it from the concept of the Nephilim, which we were exploring uh, last week. That's coming right up. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to What on Earth is Happening. Stay with us. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to What on Earth is Happening. I'm your host, Mark Passio. My website, whatonearthishappening.com. We're continuing the Cosmic Abandonment extended presentation on tonight's show. Last week, we left off discussing um, information about the beings known as the Nephilim. And that's spelled N-E-P-H-I-L-I-M, Nephilim. Uh, As I was saying last week, these were the beings that were the offspring of the original non-human entities that came to this planet hundreds of thousands of years ago and created humanity as a slave species. And they then, some of them, interbred with their creation, with their genetically modified creation. And we were on slide number 45 of the Cosmic Abandonment slideshow presentation, and I'll briefly reread that slide. It says, eventually, Anunnaki, again, this word means those who, from, who came to the earth from deep space. Anunnaki males, in the Sumerian language, that's what that word translates as, So uh, these alien beings began to take human females as sexual partners and offspring were born that were another hybrid species with more Anunnaki DNA. 
they were referred to as the demigods as they were not full Anunnaki quote-unquote gods, nor were they fully human. This interbreeding is described in the biblical text in Genesis chapter 6, which says, quote, And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives of any of them which they chose. And the Lord said, quote, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for he is also mortal, yet his days shall be no more than one hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came unto the daughters of men and bared children with them. The same became mighty men of old, the men of renown. Now that's a whole lot of information to take in there in just those few verses in Genesis 6. But this is a uh, watered-down recounting of the genetic hybridization and interbreeding story that is described fairly extensively in the Sumerian and Akkadian texts. So what you're seeing here is just taking all that information and condensing it down in Genesis. But the information is essentially there. It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth. Now what that means is after the first modification was done to the Mark I uh, variant of the human species. Because as you'll remember, last week or a couple of weeks ago, uh, I was describing the time when the first humans were genetically modified, when they were genetically created, hybridized, they could not reproduce on their own. And therefore, they went. these beings went and did a second modification, and they gave them some more of their genome, of the, these alien beings' genomic material, their DNA, and that enabled them to procreate on their own and gave us the current amount of chromosomes that we now have by splicing a chromosome, one of their chromosomes with one of ours. Okay, so uh, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, because they didn't always have that ability, all right, and daughters were born unto them, so they were at the point where they were procreating on their own, the sons of God. This means progeny of the actual Anunnaki or these alien beings, the purebred variant of them, all right, saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, the males took a liking to human females, and took wives of any of them which they chose. Well, they were gods in early humans' eyes. They were our creators, our commanders, our enslavers, you know, with seemingly supernatural capabilities and technologies. And so they just did whatever they wanted. And humanity was in no position to disagree with them at this point. Especially after the further dumbing down of humanity that happened as a result of the second genetic modification that was done, which we talked about last week. Which I feel is responsible for so many of the flaws and um, degradations in the human genome, which leads to all of the different degenerative disorders that we find in the human species. Not least of which is primary psychopathy. So, the next part of this quote, the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with man, for he is also mortal. Well, well, what does that mean? He is also mortal. It means that these beings are mortal as well. He's talking about man saying, 
humanity is also mortal, just like we are. Their lifespan is thousands, possibly even tens of thousands of years. But they are mortal, and they can die. They do die. But man would have saw the early man would have saw them as immortal beings because, you know, uh, they lived they outstripped their lifespan by such a, an extent that many times, you know, tens of generations of human beings would never see one of these beings die. That's how many thousands of years they lived for. Maybe even a hundred generations of human beings would never see one of these beings die. So they thought that they were immortal and never died. They just had an extremely long lifespan. That could also be as a result of interstellar space travel. When you're in a different, uh, you know, relativistic time uh, frame, and especially traveling at near light speeds, who knows what their technology was, that could have, you know, made them live extremely long on this planet, whereas they might have a relatively quote-unquote normal lifespan where they come from. I don't know. It's just speculation at this point, but it's something to consider. So he says, yet his, the Lord speaking here, and again, this is one of these beings, it's not the God of creation, yet his days shall be no more than 120 years. So this is, you know, a direct allusion to the previous um, uh, discussion or debate that was going on between the commanding brothers of this earth mission, Enlil and Enki, which you have to, again, take as a grain of salt and even possibly look at as factions of these beings. I don't, I look at these, these two brothers, not even as just individual beings. I see it as debating factions or warring factions, you know, of these beings that uh, perhaps the people that were just taking down these accounts, you know, saw them as one set of beings that wanted to help humanity, one set of beings that just wanted to overtly control humanity, which is the Enlil faction, okay? And the Enki faction seems to be the ones that came up with the plan to begin with and then wanted to kind of try to uplift their uh, progeny, if you want to even call it that, you know, by giving them knowledge and information and trying to somehow uh, make them capable of uh, living in, in some type of harmony with each other on this planet. I don't still see either one of them as good guys, you know. The whole thing was wrong to begin with, was immoral, and um, never actually should have been done. It's messing with, you know, the actual order of nature by going in and hybridizing other beings and making things that nature didn't really select for existence. You know, that could that could be debated at another time. I'm just putting out my thoughts regarding this. Now, you know, what does that mean? Does that mean, well, then humanity would have never existed? Well, maybe, maybe that's uh, something that people should consider may have been the natural way that things were going on this planet. Another being may have been selected to actually evolve naturally on this planet and not humanity. And then this was done. This was done to that set of beings, you know, and they were hybridized to create us, something that it appears was actually infinitely less than what they were. But we'll get into that later. We'll continue with this story on the other side of the break. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to What on Earth is Happening. Stay with us.
Welcome back everyone, this is What on Earth is Happening. We're continuing to delve into the story of cosmic abandonment to try to explain the current human condition by looking at what I call the interference theory of human origins. And we're talking about these beings known as the Nephilim and we were reading a quote from Genesis Genesis chapter 6 which talks about these beings that were... Um, demigods, quote-unquote, uh, alien-human hybrid creatures that were created by interbreeding between uh, the Anunnaki beings or the um, purebred um, alien creatures that came here and created humanity for their purposes in the ancient human past uh, and their, um, their own creations, uh, the human beings that they made. And in the biblical text, it says that there were giants in the earth in those days. And, you know, people have speculated it doesn't say there were giants on the earth, but in the earth. You know, possible, a possible allusion or reference to these beings living in uh, subterranean dwellings of some kind, possibly. Uh, because, again, we have to understand this was forbidden by their mission plan. And these beings were... Really, uh, the commanders of these beings would not really have been very happy that this started taking place because this created a whole new dynamic for them to have to contend with. You know, it was bad enough that they had already created a species that basically should not have existed according to nature. And then what they did is started interbreeding with them and creating yet another species that was not intended to exist by nature. The Nephilim race. So, um, it says, There were giants in the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came unto the daughters of men and bared children with them. The same became mighty men of old, men of renown. So, what does that mean? That means the beings that were the byproduct of this interbreeding, okay, they became what they called the mighty men of old, the men of renown. The same were these giants that were larger than normal human beings because they were essentially a cross species, an interbred spe species. Okay, So they are saying that they became mighty men of old, the men of renown. Now what does that mean? Okay, It means that they became the beings that were essentially propped up on pedestals as the gods that would rule over humanity. They were placed at the highest apexes of institutional um, power in human society. Again, we talked about this covert methodology of control by giving the human beings the institutions. Okay, They gave them money, they gave them government, they gave them religion, so that they would be more easily controllable. Okay, and now that this happened, all right, th these institutions could be ruled by these interbred species, the Nephilim. They could put them in those point positions of power at the apexes of these social institutions that had already been created by humanity, and they would see them as the intercessors or the intermediaries between the gods, the actual gods, and human beings. So they were demigods, so to speak. And again, this word uh, Nephilim, 
it comes from the Hebrew language nafal, nafal, N-E-P-H-A-L, transliterated in English. That's how you would spell it. it comes from the Hebrew nafal, which is nun pet lamed. And that verb means to fall. It literally means to fall. Nafal, fall. fall. The word fall is actually in the word. Okay? So nephilim, again, ohim, is a pluralization. And you're combining basically those two things. Nephil, oh, nephal ohim, nephalim, nephalim. Okay? And that's in Hebrew spelled nun, pe, yod, lamed, yod, mem. Final mem. Okay? So the, the word nephilim actually means those who fell or the fallen ones. Now here's where in um, religious um, sensibilities, when they come into the picture... You have people that believe that that word takes on the connotation that they are fallen angels, fallen ones, meaning fallen supernatural entities. Okay, Now, I can understand why people of a religious persuasion think like that, because, of course, this whole thing is dastardly and, and devilish by any stretch of anybody's imagination to come and create a species that is a bastardization that is a hybridization that you're taking off of their natural course of evolutionary development on the on the planet that they were adapted to you're combining and splicing your dna in with them to make them actually dumber and and they'll say that they were modifying them and making them better and smarter and giving them the ability to understand their language and use their tools in my opinion, there was nothing wrong with the beings that were already living on this world, and they were developing naturally according to the uh, natural evolutionary progression of this planet in harmony with it, and could have become something profound, and now we have been, our, inter our evolutionary development, our natural evolutionary progression has been interfered with by this genetic process, by this genetic hybridization process. That's why I call this interference theory not just intervention you know they interfered with a natural process that was already taking place and was going along its way just fine and they turned us into a being that was not adapted to naturally living on this planet as we are really the only being aside from the domesticated animals which we have hybridized that are not naturally adapted to living on the surface of this planet so you know it's um, it's something that we really have to explore when it comes to how people consider these beings their nature, and you look at you look at the whole Christian interpretation of these beings being fallen angels. But this, to me, this lends credence to them as somehow being uh, supernatural entities. Okay. You know, they're, they're, to me, they're not supernatural entities. They're not gods at all. They're not, you know, fallen angels that were once somehow good. They're just beings like us that had technology and an understanding of, you know, how to do certain things that we didn't understand. And the word nephal, the, the, and nephilim, those who are fallen, it, it, to, to me, that's a direct reference to what happened to these beings after they started interbreeding with uh, humanity. They, th since their DNA, okay, was combined with ours, they were looked at by their superiors, quote unquote, by the purebred Anunnaki as 
somehow diminished, fallen from their original state. You know, because now their DNA is combined with the human slave species DNA. And this was forbidden. You know, having sex with your own creation like this would have been certainly forbidden by their mission plan. That wasn't, wasn't part of the deal that they basically were charged to do on this planet by their home world and the council that voted to do this hybridization to create the slave species to do the labor that they wanted them to do. So... Certainly, this interbreeding with these beings would not have been permitted, and therefore none of these Nephilim, the fallen, okay, the ones who were less pure in their genetic code than the purebred Anunnaki, would not have been allowed to go back to their home world. They have not, would not have been allowed to ascend to their planet, which they called Anu, or heaven. That translates in Sumerian as heaven, or heavens. They could not have gone to the, the, that home world, okay, to the heavens. So they were fallen. They were confined to the earth. They were confined to this planet after this genetic interbreeding took place. Their own people, the purebred ones, would not allow them to return on their craft or by whatever means they were traveling. So hence the name, those who are fallen, they are fallen to the earth. They are not allowed to ascend back to the heavens, back to the Anunnaki home world. I mean, it just makes so much more sense if you think about the possibility of this just being off-world entities who came here through technology, rather than this being some kind of a supernatural play. Why would supernatural beings be concerned with what's going on on a terrestrial world? on a physical planet, you know? And people will speculate, well, they may, these interdimensional or supernatural beings may use us as a food source or feed off our energy. And that's something else we have to be open-minded to and explore as well. In any event, we'll continue the ancient story of human origins and interference theory on the other side of this break. You're listening to What on Earth is Happening. We'll be right back. silence folks there's a code of silence about our true origins and all the darwinists out there want us to believe it's all about random processes and natural selection and you know it's all just a uh, clockwork mechanism for no purpose and then all the religionists want us to believe oh it's just god doing everything and it's you know all just uh him making things the way that they are. And like I said earlier when we talked about these two childish theories of real human origins, 
that don't take into account the current human condition and why it is this way. You know, it, uh, it makes so much more sense when you look at it from a perspective that there was a natural course of progression happening here and then it got hijacked. It got hijacked by beings that didn't give a damn about us. And they were just using us for whatever they could get out of us. And many of them just intended to throw us away, as we'll get to, after we were used. Um, so, again, just to wrap up this one section before we move on, the, the uh, Nephilim, uh, Ohim is like adding a pluralization to an English word. Uh, as in Elohim. Elohim is the gods. It's the word that is used for God in the Hebrew text of the Bible. And, you know, you ask Christians, you ask Jews, you ask, you know, alleged people of the book, um, why is the name for God plural in the Bible? And there's no good answers that come back. You know, it's not El, it's Elohim. The gods, the plural gods, okay? Because they're talking about multiple beings that were seen as gods. That's what these accounts are of. They're not talking about, in these old biblical texts, they're not talking about the God of creation. They're talking about these gods, quote-unquote, gods, you know? And then... There's the demigods that came after them, the giants, the men of renown, the ones that were in the lofty positions of authority because they were placed there as intercessors and intermediaries on behalf of the gods. And then they interface with human beings that way instead of showing themselves. You know, it's like this is the god's will. You listen to us, we dictate the will of God. It sounds very familiar because that's essentially the same thing priests and government officials and judges and, you know, people at all the top level positions of earthly, quote, authority actually feel about themselves today. It's where this whole idea of divine right of kings came from, which we'll get to. They have more of the God's blood in them. Oh, they're demigods. They have more of the God's essence, you know. They have the divine right to rule over us. The gods appointed them. You know, it's where this whole notion that beings, just because of their bloodline, have some sort of a divine right to, to have a, a position of authority over others. And you just think about it, it makes so much more sense. Where would that idea have come from? That your blood and the communication of your blood through your your lineage would somehow give you a right to rule over other people? People don't even consider how ridiculous that sounds when we think of kingship. And where something like that would have ever come from? Let's move on to the next slide and continue. Slide number 46. While interbreeding with the new slave species was also forbidden by the Anunnaki's mission plan, they used this to their advantage by placing these, quote, demigod offspring into positions of royalty and authority on earth. In this way, they interfaced with and controlled the growing human population more easily. 
And there you see, on the right-hand side, a god, more likely than not Enki, because it has the water flowing from his shoulders. Enki was always depicted like that with fish near his head. Okay? Seated on his throne. Okay? And you have human supplicants on either side of him. And you have other beings who he's, t- he's talking to and perhaps communicating his will to. They're going to go in and essentially rule on his behalf. He's going to send them down to the earth. He's not going to go and do that work himself. You know, he's an ascended one. He's one of the actual gods. You know, these beings at some point very rarely made even appearances on the earth. They let their intercessor intercessors handle their business for them. And they interacted with human beings on the earth instead of the gods. And again, hence their name, the fallen ones, those who could not ascend, those who were, you know, basically, um, I don't want to use the word condemned, but were, you know, they're, as part of their mission or part of their orders, they were to stay on the earth. And, you know, that could be a condemnation or a death sentence when you look at it. But in any event, these beings, you know, were considered the lineage of the gods because they had their DNA in them more so than human beings did and and hence they were seen as demigods. Eventually, in their competition to control the slave populations, uh, population, skirmishes and even all-out wars broke out between different factions of the quote gods and demigods. So they were vying and jockeying for power on earth and resources themselves. And eventually, they started going to war with themselves over territories, over resources, etc. And it's, it was an egoic thing where they wanted to be seen as, you know, the main god. They wanted to be worshipped as these beings' god. You have to read some of the accounts of what human beings would do for these creatures. How they would see them literally as gods and treat them accordingly. You know, where every single whim was satisfied every you know you name the task you know they would do it for them they would you know completely take care of these beings in every single way that you could possibly imagine bringing them whatever foods they want doing all their their you know physical chores for them sexual association and pleasuring you name it anything Every single possible way that they could attend to these beings, it was done. It was like, so in many ways, while the conditions that were seen as deplorable on the earth and these beings didn't really want to be here in, on this planet, they liked the conditions because they were literally treated as gods. It was like some sort of a getaway or paradise to them because on their world, people weren't going to treat them like that. They were just normal beings, but here they were gods, you know? with their every wish and whim fulfilled. So, the, the ancient wars between the gods is talked about in many of these texts as well. Particularly the Indus Valley tradition texts like the Mahabharata, the Ramayana, etc. And some of the apocryphal books of the Bible get into that as well. Like the Book of Enoch. And, you know, you... 
realized that these beings were simply now in a complete state of ego by this whole condition that had been that they had created and they they liked it in many ways some of them didn't again that this enlil faction of beings really wanted to complete the mission and get out of here and they looked at it as a complete abomination what had been done on this planet so let's move on to slide number 47 and we'll get into that a little bit sometime later and when i say sometime i'm talking probably thousands of years had gone on you know we're talking about large stretches of time here not like a few years uh, a cataclysmic deluge swept over the earth wiping out much of humanity but leaving small pockets of survivors some researchers believe and again of course this is the story of the deluge or the biblical flood okay and there is a lot of scientific evidence to support that this actually took place that it was like a worldwide flood that basically set everything back to almost zero and the oceans were tilted over onto the continents and the only thing that really can do that is something that is akin to a pole shift a physical pole shift which would create the quote-unquote bathtub effect which would completely you know tilt large bodies of ocean waters over onto the continents of earth Public Broadcasting. I'm your host, Mark Passio. We're continuing to unpack the Cosmic Abandonment Extended Presentation. And we were talking about the Great Flood. And <clears throat> some researchers, uh, again, this is slide number 47 in the presentation, if you're following along with the slides, which are on the whatonearthishappening.com radio show page. They're also listed with the podcast. This will be podcast number 161. You can also download the zip file that is up is linked up there too and just uh, unpack it and you'll get all the images for this presentation. So this deluge or this cataclysm that basically created a physical pole shift of some type um, there's a lot of debate over what caused it. Some people, some researchers believe this was a natural event, which these beings that were called the Anunnaki by the Sumerians knew was imminent, but they were incapable or unwilling to prevent. In other words, they knew it was coming, but they wanted it to hit the earth because it was a good way to basically get rid of the humans at that point, which, you know, their work had largely been done. And we're talking about relatively recent human history. We're going back probably a little over 13,000 years. Maybe even a little bit less than that, give or take a few hundred years. So, some people think that, you know, this was, their mission was wrapping up. Many of them were leaving. And 
they were just basically looking for a way to solve the quote-unquote human problem. So some people believe that this was a natural event that was uh, part of a Seifert galaxy um, cyclical explosion. And the researcher, or the scientist, I'm sorry, Paul LaViolette has done a lot of work regarding this. Uh, the scientist uh, Seifert is who this phenomenon is named after. It's believed that most galaxies have a large central condensed mass that periodically emits eruptions from, the, from a blow-off of that mass. And that creates a galactic wave that stems out from the center of the galaxy in all directions every so many thousand years. And that gravitational wave can basically rearrange solar system, whole solar systems, if you're caught in, uh, you know, some kind of a, uh, an ebb or flow of it if you happen to be in that portion of, of the galaxy that it really hits hard. And supposedly Earth was in that path during this Seifert galaxy explosion 13,000 years ago. Now that's what some researchers think caused this. Okay? And I think it's as solid of a theory as any. And there's a lot of evidence to support, physical, geological evidence supports the flood, the cataclysm. And that there was a global civilization on the earth before that that was then wiped off the face of the earth and we've been rebuilding ever since. Other people believe that it resulted from a physical pole shift which was deliberately caused by a faction of the Anunnaki led by Enlil using advanced technology in order to eradicate humanity deliberately a species which Enlil saw as an abomination that never should have existed. Did they have such technology? More likely than not, they did. Some researchers speculate that the Earth was not always at its current axial tilt with respect to its plane of orbit around our star, the Sun. Its 23.5 degree axial tilt is what gives the Earth its seasons Okay, when it's pointed toward the sun, there is summer in the northern hemisphere, winter in the southern hemisphere. When the northern hemisphere points, pole points toward the sun. When it is pointed away from, at a 90 degree angle away from the sun, that's the equinoxes, whether it be the spring equinox or the fall equinox. Whether it is, when the nor northern uh, pole is pointed away from the sun, that is winter in the northern hemisphere and southern in the southern hemisphere because the southern pole would be pointed toward the sun. Hence, this axial tilt of 23.5 degrees gives us our seasons. If the Earth were not tilted at such an angle with respect to its plane of orbit around our star, there would be an eternal spring. Crops would grow in the northern and southern hemisphere at all times of the year. And just think about what kind of a different level of consciousness that would give the people of the earth. There would be no season to survive. There would be no season of death and non-growth and no growing of food. 
that we use to su sustain ourselves because the energy of the sun would always be directly hitting essentially the equator of the earth. And therefore, the northern and southern hemisphere would always be temperate zones where we could grow essentially any time of the year, food. Therefore, there would be no state of lack because we wouldn't have to go into survival mode every year. Now, it's a lot different because there's food trucked in from all different locations where it's grown, you know. But the point here is the consciousness of lack and non-abundance and scarcity would not really be present on a planet that had a equal um, angle, the, uh, a zero degree angle with respect to its plane of orbit around its star because it would be basically a planet in perpetual spring. Many researchers speculate that this was the condition of the Earth in our ancient past until this event, which threw it into further chaos. First of all, you look at you have to look at the continents of the Earth as like a basin holding water. And then if you suddenly kick that basin, what would happen to most of the water? It would spill out over the sides. You know, the, the, the ocean floor, the continents are, you know, like an elevated shelf, sort of. And then the ocean has, is like a basin. The water is sitting in a basin. And if you suddenly tilted the entire thing or jolted the entire thing, what would happen? Well, water would spill everywhere. That's what a physical pole shift is. We're not talking about a magnetic pole shift in this case. We're talking about a physical pole shift. And other researchers believe that that was actually created by somehow destabilizing the possibly the Earth's magnetic field to such an extent that the physical body of the planet reshifted itself to compensate. And that this technology was used by Enlil or the Enlil faction of Anunnaki beings. And again, I just want to reiterate here, these names are just terms, you know. We don't have to get hung up on names. You know, it's not that they have to be the quote-unquote Anunnaki of Sumerian origin, of Sumerian, uh, you know, way of explaining it. It, it. This is just a name. That All that meant was those who came to the earth from the heavens, from deep space. That's it. You know, it's just a label. Other uh, cultures called them, called them other things. You know, like in the Zulu tribes, they called them Chitta-Uri. You know, they were called many, many different names. In the Semitic regions, they were the Elohim. So, don't get hung up on the names. And even when I say Enlo, again... It doesn't necessarily have to mean one person. I look at it as a faction of beings. They might have been led by a being named Enlil, but they had the same idea or ideology when it came to how they viewed humans. We'll be right back. We don't need no education. No dark sarcasm in the classroom. 
Welcome back, everyone. This is What on Earth is Happening. I'm your host, Mark Passio. My website, whatonearthishappening.com. We're talking about the largely untold story of ancient human origins as a slave race. And how this connects with our current condition as a species. And eventually we're going to talk about, you know, what we have to look at in order to change this condition. But um, we're talking about the flood. The biblical deluge. And how different researchers who are into interference theory, as I call it, intervention theory, as some other researchers have called it, Um, how they looked at the causal factors for this cataclysm. Some think it was a natural event and that the Anunnaki simply looked at that as a fortunate thing for them because this could handle the human population that they didn't really know what to do with or how to handle. It was running out of control. It was very violent. It was barbaric. They really couldn't be taught very similar to how we are now. Really nothing has changed. And um, they just wanted them gone, many of them. And some speculate, other researchers speculate that, no, this was a deliberate event that was actually created technologically. Now, regardless of which one of those is true, the result was the same. And large amounts of ocean water poured onto the continents and wiped out the vast majority of humanity. We're talking about tsunamis, you know, a hundred feet tall or more or higher. You know, we're not talking about, you know, little 20 foot storm surges like we've seen in recent years here on Earth. We're talking about walls of water rushing over the continent. You know, where you would only survive if you were in the very highest mountain regions. Or you happen to be in a spot where some of these massive super, you know, uh, tsunami waves did not gather, which would have been very few places. But, um,. You know, this goes to the biblical story of the flood and Noah, you know, which we're going to look at in the next slide. All right. So we can move on to that was slide number 47. We can move to slide 48 now. Uh, The prelude prelude to the deluge is described in Genesis chapter six. Again, Genesis one through six is really the watering down accounting biblically of the entire early human uh, history with these beings. And it's just traditionally, you know, the way it's told is to hide the real events that took place because religion wants to control you. It doesn't want to enlighten you and tell you about your real origins. Religion is all about you're going to do as we say, you know. And if people don't think that dark occultists gave us all the religions, you know, all the world religions, they're just they're foolish people who just don't understand what's really going on at all. Because they want to believe my religion's right. My religion is the truth. You know? 
everything else is all screwed up. Everything else has all been been handed to us, you know, by these people as their system of control to be propped up as their system of control. But somehow, the religion that they you know that that we were given is the is the correct one, and somehow that's the one that's going to lead to a, an entire better place and a better world. And I'm talking about, of course, exoteric religions. I think all religions have an esoteric core at the foundation that is based upon natural law. That some of the people who communicated these stories wrapped a lot of natural law in some of the allegories. But in general, if you're focused on the outside story, you know, the shell, so to speak, all, your, all that's being done is your mind is being controlled. You've got to get past the cover story, past the astrotheology, past all, you know, the things that are, the, the stories that are told there to simply control your, the, your way of thinking about what is taking place in the world Okay, and get past all of that to get to the truth and a real tradition that lies underneath all of that that is about how we really should be treating each other. You know, not which God is better, you know, not, you know, uh, which ways we should see imposed on other people because we somehow dislike the way other people live. It's all about whether something is moral or not. That's what it really needs to be about. That's the common sense basis, the foundation. And then that just gets a load of dirt thrown all on top of it and, and muddied over. You know, because people aren't really looking at what's right or wrong. You know, they're looking at their own preferences and whims. How they think things should be done. And it's more about being right to them than it is about actually knowing the difference between good or right action, you know, and wrong action or evil. So going back to this account, let's look at what Genesis 6 says about the deluge, and then we could understand it in light of these events with these non-human beings. It says, quote, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great upon the earth, and that everyone and that every thought of his heart was evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart, and the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, for it repenteth me that I made them, that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God, and God looked upon the earth and saw that it was corrupt. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence, and behold, I will destroy them. Now, you'll notice a couple of things. The word Lord and the word God. It switches somewhere in there, doesn't it? See? There's the word Lord in the beginning of it, and then there's the word God 
near the end of this paragraph. And I would suggest to you that the word Lord here, okay, applies to one of these factions of beings and the word God may apply to another. Or you could look at it as this God that we're talking about here may be the Enlil being or the Enlil faction of beings. And then the God that saves Noah, quote unquote, who is actually Zeusudra from the Sumerian tradition. It's the same story. When you look at the story of Zeusudra out of Sumer, that is the, the biblical story of Noah. We'll look into that dynamic a little bit on the other side of this break. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to What on Earth is Happening, exploring ancient human origins. We'll be right back. You know the day destroys the night, night divides the day. Try to run, try to hide, break on through to the other side. We need to break on through to the other side to get to a more accurate understanding of our past. That can help us to understand why what is taking place in our present world is happening and what we can do to change it. So we were talking about the story of Noah, biblically and how this is a direct parallel to the older story of Zeusudra in the Sumerian tradition. And uh, many speculate that Zeusudra was actually a uh, hybrid as well, was part uh, Nephilim in his genetics, possibly. But um, there's, there's so much in this paragraph. Let's break it down for a few moments. God saw the wickedness of man was great upon the earth. Again, they were behaving as savages and barbarians in many places because their genetics were really so screwed up and they weren't really taught morality. And they, you know, were living as, you know, just vile creatures in many cases. And there were others that were very civilized and wanted to you know, be moral beings and, you know, wanted to learn how to use technology in the right way and treat each other with fairness and decency. It's kind of like it is today, you know, but the vast majority of people were barbaric. And there was a lot of violence, you know, and he says, God saw that the wickedness of man was great and that every thought of his heart was evil continually and it repented him that he had ever made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. Again, these beings saw that they had done something that was an abomination against nature, that they had tampered with the real code of God, DNA, and they had rearranged it in a way that it should not have been done and created some sort of a monster. And people can say all they want, oh, that's such a horrible, dark worldview of what humanity is, okay? And once again, I don't think that's our nature. I think our nature is that they made us so that we are programmable. The problem is there was no good programming going in. You know, when you make something with a nature like this and then it's left to its own devices without actually 
giving it good information and programming it properly, you know, it just decays. It goes into a, a downward spiral. Proper information, proper uplifting, proper building of the mind, of the soul, would have to be done with these beings. And in many cases, that's what the Enki being and faction were trying to do, which we could talk about. All right? But essentially, it wasn't enough. And the it says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's where his name is first mentioned. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, now the Lord may have been referring to Enki here. Enki favored Noah. See, if Enlil sent the flood, or created the flood, right, or forbade anybody who knew that a cataclysmic event was coming, like a Seifert galaxy explosion, which the Anunnaki would have been able to detect with their technology probably for years before it happened, Possibly Enlil, as the mission commander, forbade anybody to tell any humans about it so that they could do no preparation to avoid or avert it because he wanted them gone. And the Lord in this paragraph may be referring to Enki, who couldn't let go of humanity because he saw them as his children that he had created. They weren't... weren't could not have lived, could not have existed unless it was for him and his idea to create this genetic hybrid species. So Enki may have been searching for a being that could repopulate the earth with his genes. See, that's where the next line comes in so importantly. Okay? Noah was a just man. It means maybe the teachings of Enki and the Enki faction of mystery schools, the early mystery school traditions, which Enki had set up, were maybe had taken effect on this person, and he maybe he did understand natural law, maybe he was a very moral human being. But the next part is critically important. And perfect in his generations. What does that mean? Perfect in his genes. Generations is just a euphemism or a code word here for genes. It doesn't mean all of his previous generations were perfect beings. It means that his actual, his genetic essence was somehow an anomaly and it was free from the flaws and the um, degenerative conditions in the genomic makeup of the larger portion of humanity. And therefore, if he used his genomic makeup as a template, perhaps when he began to procreate, as he gave birth to new beings, they wouldn't be infected with the kind of genetic disorders that was seen in the bulk of humanity. Or the over 4,000 genetic disorders that still exist with humanity, that still exist with humanity today, that existed then. See, and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. Now, this probably literally means that he's having a conversation with Enki at this point. And he's saying that he's going to let him know that the earth is going to be destroyed. 
because he wants him and perhaps a small pocket, a small faction of earth humans to survive with him so that they could repopulate the earth after. The other Anunnaki would probably think, well, nothing could have survived that. And in many cases, the accounts of them watching the flood take place, they were just as terrified and petrified as many humans who were undergoing it on the surface would have been. It was that powerful. And they thought nothing could have survived down there. But in small pockets, humanity did survive. It's tough. We die hard, believe me. It's tough to get them all. <laughs> so these beings, like I said, either created the deluge through technology or they allowed it to take place and forbade most of their people from telling humanity what happened. But Enki told Ziusudra slash Noah about this and a certain portion of them were able to make preparations and survive it and therefore begin to repopulate the earth thousands of years, uh, uh, hundreds of years after the deluge occurred and then the waters receded. You know, this pocket of survivors would have probably bred among themselves until they found other survivors elsewhere, elsewhere in small pockets once these floodwaters receded. And slowly they started building up a population again. So, also there would have been many Nephilim on the earth during the deluge. Because again, the Anunnaki, I don't feel, wanted to save these beings. I don't feel that they really wanted them with them. Because what would have been the the social ramifications of that on their world? They would have had to take these hybrid beings with lesser genetics as they perceived it to them back to their home world and explain how they had had sex with their own creation of worker slave species that they had created as part of a mission plan and then they had interbred with. It would not have been looked favorably upon on their world by any stretch of anybody's imagination. And therefore I think what happened was there were pockets of human survivors, there were pockets of Nephilim survivors, the demigods. And then a society came about where they were all interbreeding with each other because there would have been a diminished gene pool as a result of the decrease in population. And the Nephilim would have looked at themselves and their progeny as, we are of the gods, we have a divine bloodline, we have more of the gods' DNA in us than these other humans. And they would have reset up, recreated society along with some of the guidelines that the original Anunnaki would have given them while they were alive and running the the whole show on earth. So these original beings finished their mission after the deluge. There, there, was, there was, you know, interaction after the deluge. This wasn't immediate. You know, I believe maybe they had some doing in setting up the institutions when they recognized that we, we couldn't get these beings or even this natural disaster, if it was, didn't get them all. And in many ways, there are researchers who look at this as they saw this as these beings saw this as a, a divine signal from the God of creation to say, hey, don't try to wipe out these beings. Look at what they just survived. Look at what they just went through and still survived 
Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to What on Earth is Happening. I'm your host, Mark Passio. My website, whatonearthishappening.com. We're continuing the unpacking of the cosmic abandonment presentation in its in its extended format. And after uh, I complete this uh, extended unpacking of this presentation, I'm going to get into specific details by going into source text material regarding the supporting evidence for these beings' existence and the events that occurred in our ancient past. So, we were talking about the the deluge or the biblical flood and its aftermath and how pockets of survivors, both human and Nephilim, survived it. And the Anunnaki saw this as some kind of a divine sign uh, in the aftermath that, hey, they survived this. We thought it would wipe them all out. Some accounts even tell that Enlil was moved by the survival of the people, even though he had hated them from the very beginning. And they, I believe what they did at that point is they decided to simply reset up the social institutions that they had given and let the experiment run from there, you know? Let the Petri dish, you know, cultivate as it would. And they wouldn't have any direct over-involvement in that process, at least not that, you know, is outwardly put out there by a lot of researchers or... um a lot of historians, ancient historians, but who knows? Like I said, I'm not opposed to the idea that some of these beings remained to oversee this whole thing. Okay? That's very possible. But what I do feel that they did is they set up their demigods, the Nephilim, to basically rule the institutions that they had given to people on the earth. And they set them up as the very powerful heads of all the human social institutions. You know, they set them up as kings, as priests, as the people who would direct currency, you know, as people who would lead uh, teaching centers, etc. And you have the total descent of humanity from there, from that point on. That's why at the very beginning of these beings providing these systems and leaving, everything descends in almost a linear progression from that point. You know, until we get to the modern era where we seem to be building technology back up to levels of before in a very different way. Because these beings used Nephilim technology and Anunnaki technology before. Now it would seem, you know, their bloodlines and genes have completely intermixed with us. And, you know, there's still, a lot of royalty is still obsessed with 
inbreeding with each other because they're looking for keeping certain characteristics intact and traits intact and see them as see themselves as having divine right to rule because of their blood you know it probably stems right back to this these ancient accounts of these beings and their differences in DNA and the different kinds of hybrids that they essentially created but of course the actual beings are no longer here with us these original beings are no longer at least overtly here with us on the surface of this world clearly and I would feel I would speculate that the Nephilim or the interbred or crossbred hybrids that had their a lot of their DNA in it also that those genes got interbred into the pool of humanity and eventually became lesser and lesser and lesser until those traits couldn't really be seen as much and it, it all blended into one basic genetic pool hence you don't have beings that look a lot like the Anunnaki in our current society you know that was probably an even smaller gene pool the Nephilim gene pool and it eventually got absorbed into the human gene pool as those two races bred with each other on and on after the original Anunnaki left the purebred Anunnaki left the earth so slide number 49 is the last slide basic slide of this story it says the Anunnaki's mission was eventually completed more likely than not successfully that they came for they acquired the amounts of materials that they came here to procure and they gathered their people and returned to their home planet leaving the traumatized surviving members of their human slave species to repopulate the earth with the social conditions which had been provided to them and with the demigod nephilim species as essentially their leader their leaders or their overseers with the institutions that had provi- been provided to them in effect put into effect by the anunnaki and it makes sense why we're running this insane system ever since that isn't good for anybody on the planet it was only good to control the problem children of these problematic parents so called and they took off to go do their thing and they left us here on the earth with essentially you know their a version of a bratty big brother and sister the Nephilim to run run the household, so to speak. And in slide number 50, I gave this talk around Christmas time. I wanted to put in a little, uh, originally, I wanted to put in a little bit of comic relief. Uh, I said that we were left here home alone, cosmically abandoned. You know, the, the Macaulay Culkin character from the movie Home Alone, where his parents go out and forget that they had left him home by, the, by himself which leads to comical situations when you know burglars arrive at the house an old Christmas movie for people who may or may not have seen it so I said we were left home alone in effect we were just abandoned and forgotten you know they set up some control based traditions which they felt could somehow lead to order here for us 
but they didn't stick around as parents. You know, they made us and then they abandoned us. Just like so many people do today with children. It's the same story. Just, you know, on a cosmic level. They made a species and then abandoned that species. Essentially abandoned it. (coughs) People could say they left us here with some kind of a system that they thought would bring order, but it doesn't. And it hasn't. And it never can because those systems are flawed on their face because they're based on some people being so-called genetically superior to others and having some kind of right to rule over other people as their slaves, as gods, you know, ruling over slaves. No system that's built on slavery can ever result in order. It can only result in chaos and destruction which is what we're, we're already in that, this phase of total chaotic breakdown and eventually destruction, which is coming if we don't pull our heads out from up our rear ends and completely think differently about everything that's going on here. You know, which leads me to you know, something I've really want, wanted to touch on. I'm going to shift gears here for a little bit before we go into the next story, the next part of the story, which I call the story of our present, part two of the presentation. And that's this idea of that we're somehow free and independent. You know, this is 4th of July weekend, Independence Day weekend. If the people who tried to put a system of real freedom and independence in place would see what this country has become today, they would urinate on us. The founders of this country would literally urinate on us. That is how bad the situation is in America. That we have become, in every way, a communist nation. A communo-fascist nation. And people still have the nerve to even put up a flag, wave a flag, and do whatever ritual they're going to do with animal meat and claim that they're free and say we're celebrating freedom and independence the people of this country are a joke if they think they're free and independent a joke and anybody who thinks that the people who quote unquote go fight overseas for freedom are doing that and securing freedom they're an even bigger joke an even bigger joke They're a bunch of clowns, is what they are. And they're the problem with the world. People who think like that are the very problem with this world. Brainwashed and love it. I'm going to continue this little mini rant on the other side before we jump into more material. You're listening to What on Earth is Happening. We'll be right back. Don't go anywhere.
Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to What on Earth is Happening. I'm your host, Mark Passio. My website, whatonearthishappening.com, and that is exactly what we need to do is we need to wake up from our sleep. Because anybody that thinks that humanity is somehow free or that even Americans are somehow free, they are in a deep coma. They're beyond sleeping. You know, if people can't see that this species is enslaved and we don't get to keep the product of our labor, one of the clearest examples of slavery is taxation. Prohibition. Can't think of any more clearer form of slavery than that. Telling someone, you may not put what you want to put as an adult into your own body. I'll dictate what you may or may not put into your body. And people can't see that's a claim of ownership on the body of another, which is exactly tantamount to slavery. Because they call it something different and condition people through words And then we're told it's not slavery, and so then we can't see it as a people. It's really just that simple. That's how word magic works. You know, people can't see government is slavery. People can't see money is slavery. And as long as money exists, slavery will exist. All of these systems... They were all given to us by our creators. Plural. And I do not mean creator of the universe. They were given to us by our off-world creators. All of these systems of control. Money, government, religion, politics, taxation. All of it at their whim. And we've been running these programs like a hamster caught in a wheel ever since for thousands of years, tens of thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years. When are we going to wise up and realize none of this has ever been for our betterment? It has only ever been put in place to do one thing, and that is to enslave us. Because it all comes down to one thing, folks. It all comes down to self-love. That's the main problem with this entire world and its people. We are a self-hating species. And no one wants to wrestle with that. No one wants to confront that. No one wants to look at that. Humanity ultimately hates itself. We hate ourselves for a very specific reason. That is not the bottom line of the psychological story of mankind. Of the psychological condition that we are undergoing. is self-loathing and self-hatred. That's not the bottom line. That's what it all comes down to that needs to be changed. But the question becomes, why do we hate ourselves? We hate ourselves because of deeply seated psychological parental abandonment issues. And I apologize if you hear uh, noise in the background. Uh, One of my uh, beautiful pet chihuahuas is down here with his toy. 
um, and um, he's a little bit uh, worried because of the fireworks going on in the city. Both of them actually are, uh, as many people with with uh, uh, dogs would probably, you know, uh, know what goes on during this time of the year with them, and they want to constantly be right next to you and around you, and he's squeaking his toy. So I apologize that that comes through on the microphone, but uh, he's he's uh, doing his best to cope with the uh, fireworks noise outside. So. <laughs> Uh, going back to what I was saying regarding, you know, the whole 4th of July thing and people not re- recognizing slavery, you know, um, these beings just did whatever they wanted, then took off, and they left their so-called children here to deal with the aftermath of a the existence of a species that should not have ever existed. And that is trauma that is traumatic and it is literally the race was abandoned by its cosmic parents that came here gave birth to us and then left now what do you think that's going to do that you know what that can do to an individual child imagine what that will do to a species and their collective psychology it threw them into a state of self-loathing And because they were told by their parents, hey, this system is here to help and protect you and bring order. You know, here's your big brothers. You know, we're going to give that to you. No, we took it like coming from, as as advice coming from somehow loving parents. As a child would take it from a parent. Well, I'll take my parents' advice. They must know better. And we just took that ball and ran with it. And you know where it got us? Into a huge pit. A huge pit of degradation and immorality and decay and destruction. And we don't want to grow up. We want to keep blaming what's continuing to go on on the story of our past. You see, that's what somebody who is in a state of self-loathing always does. You want to know the best place to look at this psychological dynamic? In people with addictions. I'm talking hardcore addictions. Bad drug addiction. Bad gambling addiction. Things like that. That are absolutely destroying their lives. Completely hijacking their own life. And hurting themselves. Somebody who's doing something like that can't possibly love themselves. But I guarantee you, you find a person like that and you go back into their past. And almost invariably, I would say, oh, well over 95% of the time, maybe up to 98% of the time, if I had to give just a guesstimate as someone who has studied this dynamic, you're going to find childhood abandonment issues parentally. They're going to have some kind of an issue where in their childhood, their parent let them down. Didn't provide for them in some way. The the parent doesn't have to take off and be absent. I've said this repeatedly over and over so people understand what I'm talking about with parental abandonment does not just mean physical parental abandonment. It can mean psychological abandonment. It can mean spiritual abandonment. It can mean mental abandonment. It can mean emotional abandonment. Abandonment in whatever the child actually needs for their proper development. 
to become truly raised into a real adult who has common sense and morals. The parents haven't provided that. Therefore, that child has this feeling of inadequacy. Why didn't they do this for me? This is going on. This is an internal dialogue going on subconsciously. The person doesn't even have to be aware of it. What, what is wrong with me? Why? Didn't my parent love me enough? Was there something wrong with me? You will find this the inner dialogue going on, it, not at a conscious level, at a subconscious level, with people who are wrestling with addictive addiction and addictive tendencies invariably and the same overarching psychological dynamic is happening on the whole planet because of what happened in our ancient past with the whole species because of what happened here on this planet in our ancient past we can't let go of the past trauma in many cases because we don't even understand it we don't even know about it So we'll pick up this story of our present. What does this tell us about what's going on now? What can it explain? On the other side of this break, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to What on Earth is Happening. Stay with us. We're about to jump into another segment of the Cosmic Abandonment presentation that I've been unpacking over the last few weeks. This is part two of the presentation, which I call The Story of Our Present, and we're moving on past the first 50 slides. This is slide number 51 right now. And in this segment of the presentation, what I'm going to attempt to do is try to explain seemingly inexplicable aspects of our modern society in light of what we just talked about, the story that we just unpacked and talked about regarding our true ancient origins as a species, as a slave species. So, moving on to slide number 52, I pose the question, in light of extraterrestrial involvement in human origins, or what I have simply called interference theory, what seemingly inexplicable aspects of our modern world can now <coughs> we explain more readily? And we're going to look at several different dynamics in this portion of the presentation. We can look at... <coughs> ancient structures and artifacts that we still don't understand how they were built and in many cases could not duplicate those structures in the modern world with all of our seemingly advanced technology today we could not rebuild them with the level of accuracy by any means that we have technologically at our disposal today could not do it 
And anybody that wants to tell you that we could reproduce some of the efficiency on some of these uh, ancient structures is absolutely incorrect or lying. And we'll get to some of those. All right? Obvious flaws and complete inaccuracies in Darwinian theory of evolution, which again I've said from the very beginning I do not concur with or believe in. I think Darwin had a promising theory, which he picked up the ball and ran with it, and he said that it would have to be borne out in the fossil record, and it never was. And social engineers took that theory, and they certainly ran with that ball much farther than Darwin ever did. You know, because it suits their agenda, and they want people to think of themselves as part of a clockwork, soulless mechanism that is the universe. You know, some grand clockwork mechanism with no purpose or true intelligent design underlying it. So, when we look at this story of our ancient human past and we look at specific details of our origins, it completely punches holes everywhere in Darwinian macrobiological evolutionary theory. I put evolution in quotes when I ever, whenever I talk about Darwinian evolution. I always put the word evolution in quotes because it only takes into account physical survival and the passage, the passing on of genetic material, which is not what evolution is. That is one small part of what evolution is, and you can, as I've said in past shows, you can pass on genetic material and be devolving, not be evolving at all. Only if you are moving toward more truth, toward more morality, toward more knowledge and understanding, toward more common sense, toward more complexity in the way you think and understand things, and certainly toward more morality that you embody and live in your life, are you truly evolving? Evolution does not mean just physical survival of genetic material. What else can this inter interference theory help to explain as we've talked about human genetic defects actual genetic defects in the human genome and when we look at how their imprecise splicing of genetic material because they were just creating a impermanent temporary slave worker species as they called it a primitive worker which is how the quote unquote elitists still see humanity as primitive workers to just work for them. You know, this can explain all of the various genetic defects in the human genome, which we have thousands of, not hundreds, thousands. And people think the God of creation makes things like that? With all these genetic degradations and anomalies? I don't think nature is sloppy like that. I think other beings can be sloppy like that. Especially when they don't really care about what they're making. Except for their own selfish purposes. But no god of creation that I accept does things like that. For what? For what purpose? To torment us? What's his math just bad? You know, his, his, he just can't get a handle on proportions. You know, can't quite match up the base pairs properly. 
bit for bit. I guess he's just bad with arithmetic. I guess that's what it is. This uh, interference theory can explain the origins of primary psychopathy, which again, hardly anybody even attempts. Genetic researchers hardly ever attempt to do it. Psychologists never attempt to do it. Sociologists don't attempt to do it. Where did primary psychopaths come from? Well, I think it's one of the genetic defects that came in as a result of the genetic splicing that these beings did. And that makes so much sense. Because the other possibilities of it being God doing it to us or us doing it to ourselves certainly don't make as much sense. But if you have direct interference in the human genome, primary psychopathy is something that very well could be explained quite easily, quite readily. Somebody's in there tampering with something that shouldn't be tampered with, with the human genetic code? What makes you think that couldn't create a brain structure in a certain portion of human beings that has no capacity to experience emotion in the midbrain? Which is what primary psychopathy is. Of course that could create a condition in the human genome that in a certain percentage of human beings, the midbrain is malfunctioning and doesn't create the neuropeptides that go into the bloodstream and help us to feel emotion in the physiology when we perform actions to other people or other beings or animals. And nobody wants to try to take a crack at explaining how that condition gets created in a species. Oh, it's just it's just random, right? It's random mutation, like Darwin says. Random mutation just created that. I guess cosmic rays hitting us in a certain way just created psychopathy. And people actually believe this notion that nature just produces things like this. For what purpose? Like I said, it has to be the worldview. If you accept that at its foundation, there is a worldview that says nature is here to torment humanity. That's an inescapable conclusion, an inescapable logical conclusion. That has to be the worldview. Does nature do that is the question. Is that what nature is attempting to do? provide a basis for human trauma and torture by making a small percentage of people just screwed up to a point where they don't feel at all and they become interspecies predators preying on their own kind? I'm, I'm so tired of getting emails. Please, people, do not send me an email defending psychopaths. I don't want to hear it. Okay? I don't want to hear that you think this is somehow an evolutionary adaptation or advantage. You're sick. You're a sick person if you think that. You're demented. You're mentally ill. Don't send me emails defending psychopaths. I don't want to hear it. I don't think I could be any more clear than that. We'll pick this up on the other side, folks. You're listening to what on earth is happening. 
Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to What on Earth is Happening. I'm your host, Mark Passio. And before the break cut us off uh, in the last uh, segment, um, I was talking about people who send me emails who try to defend human psychopathy and say it may be necessary. It may be some kind of an evolutionary adaptational advantage, you know? Uh, Somebody sent me an email last week or a couple of weeks back saying, uh, what do you think about the theory that psychopaths are necessary for saving lives in our society because their inability to feel makes them excellent firefighters and ambulance drivers, etc. You know? They have no, no concern for danger, you know? They don't care about w- what position they're in because they're willing to take such chances. Yeah, I, I want that psychopath driving me to the hospital next time I have a traumatic uh, circumstance that has to be dealt with in the body. I definitely want a psychopathic ambulance driver. I'll tell you that much. I mean, I mean, you know, I, I, it's, it's hard for me to even express that people could even take anything like this seriously. Let me, t- let me just say what this is. Do you know who puts out these theories? You know who puts out the theories that psychopaths are necessary and required and they're, they're, the, they're the foundation of a healthy society. They're ne- needed for saving lives. You know who puts that out? Psychopaths who know that they're psychopaths. That's who puts those theories out there. That's what I think of that. I mean, it's just such nonsense that people would even waste my time with stuff like this. And I'm telling you, I get it all the time. I get, I get the whole thing from people still emailing me telling me that there's no such thing as psychopathy. They can look out in society and say with an open, a straight-faced look on their face, with open eyes... There's no such thing as human psychopathy. Doesn't exist. I mean, I think these people are more mentally ill than the psychopaths themselves, to be honest. That's a whole different level of crazy. A whole different level. That you can look at what's going on in this world and say that there aren't such a thing as people who have lost all ability to feel emotion or were never, never had it to begin with. And you don't know that that's the case definitively, objectively? I mean, there's no common sense there whatsoever as far as I'm concerned, if somebody takes that position. None. It's a naive child. I've used that term before, and I'm saying that's exactly what that person is. You have to understand, this is not just an ad hominem attack. You could call it that too. It is that too. Because I am certainly attacking the person who thinks that way. Yes, it is that. But you know what? It's also true. Because that's exactly what that person is psychologically in their makeup. They're a naive child who has never grown up and looked at the world as it really is. It's not just my feeling or impression or take on them being like that. They really are like that. And I'm also pointing that out to other people. That that is true and correct. That is their psychological dynamic that they're trapped in. You know, and, and th- this whole dynamic of psychopathy, I have to do a whole other show on it one day. You know, I have to go into, you know, the, the, the idea that do we need a psychopathic aspect of our personality, even though we're not psychopaths? Even though we're not actually primary or secondary psychopaths, is it 
a part of a tool set to have the ability to switch off all emotion. And should that be maintained? Yes. I'm an advocate of that, actually. I tell people all the time, I am not a psychopath. I am not a primary psychopath. I am not a secondary psychopath. But in my tool set, in my psychological tool set, I have a psychopath at my disposal that I can take and use when it is required and necessary. And then when I'm done, I could put that psychopath back in the tool set. When you're in enough control over your own psychological makeup, you can do that. And this idea, this psychological dynamic is actually explored in the movie Equilibrium, which is about psychopathy and not having the ability to feel emotion. It's about primary and secondary psychopathy. A very highly symbolic Masonic movie told through the allegory of Freemasonry. I, I, I can't recommend the movie Equilibrium enough. It's right up there with They Live as one of my favorite movies of all time. It's probably number two behind They Live. But I, I'm telling you, uh, uh, people need to watch that film to understand all of the different dynamics going on regarding human emotion. And I think it gets almost everything right on point except its kind of view of human nature. I don't see human nature as something that is inherently, you know, dark and foreboding and, you know, creating a chaotic, chaotic conditions. It's simply programmable, which is how these beings made us programmable because they wanted to program us to their liking and to perform the tasks that they wanted us to do. So does this explain the origin of primary psychopathy? We're going to get into that in this section, this interference theory as the creator of primary psychopathy, that these beings did this to us and created this condition that has been with us ever since as a result of their imprecise genetic modifications to us. Does this interference theory of human origins explain the cultural institutions that are all around us to this day, like religion, government, money, authority, priest classes, mystery school traditions, secret societies, dark occultism. I would suggest, yes, it does. Can we understand the origins of money as a system of control and enslavement as a result of studying the interference theory and the interference origins of humanity. These are the beings that created money, the concept of money, and gave that to human beings so it could easily control them and create social strata classes among them so that they would easily control themselves. The human obsession with gold is a big part of this which we're going to explore. And I've already touched on how gold is not actually intrinsically valuable. That's only a statement that is not actually true. Intrinsic value means you can eat it, you can clothe yourself with it, or you could defend yourself with it, or shelter yourself with it. That's intrinsic value. These are the basic needs of a human being for survival. 
Beyond that, it's something that you want or you find aesthetically pleasing. It's a desire. It's not a need. Intrinsic means it's fulfilling of a need. And gold has no real intrinsic value. It has perceived value. The only way gold has intrinsic value is when you're already in a highly technological society that uses precious metals such as gold for technological development, as in computing technology. Therefore, it does have intrinsic value if you want to use it in computing applications. Other than that, it does not. Can this interference theory of human origins explain how we got the notion of royalty, the divine right to rule, the notion of authority in government and kingship. We're going to explore all of that in this section. And again, we'll do this you know, uh, over the next you know, segment until the end of this show, and then we'll continue this presentation in you know, the next several weeks. So that's the general topics of this section that we're going to look at, not in any particular order. So let's move on to slide number 53. One of the things in the ancient past that was absolutely forbidden and punishable by death, especially when the Nephilim were ruling humanity and the gods were off in space at way stations and they were only overseeing the operations you know, every so often, was to attempt to make actual carved images of what the nef of what the anunnaki themselves really looked like that was completely forbidden and punishable by death and we'll pick this presentation up right there on the other side stay with us everyone I'm your host, Mark Passio, my website, whatonearthishappening.com. Last segment of the show for this edition, and we were talking about how in the ancient world, when the quote-unquote gods, the Anunnaki, were still among us, they forbade anyone to depict them as they really looked. This kept them kind of in the shadows and kept their hybrids, the Nephilim, basically ruling over humanity unchallenged because they were doing the bidding of the gods and the gods would not be recognized as simply mortal creatures by a population of humanity that was 
probably slowly beginning to come out of their naivete as a species as they uh, evolved over thousands of years. So the Anunnaki put in place this tradition of absolutely forbidding their actual image to be recorded in any way and communicated to other people. They had vague notions of what they looked like. And we see in a lot of ancient carvings, etchings, inscriptions, uh, stelae and reliefs, um, different depictions of what these beings looked like. And many of them are symbolic and are not meant to be taken literally. Okay, I think more likely than not, we don't have an accurate account of what these beings really did look like. There are many different descriptions by different researchers uh, who have drawn pictures, painted paintings, etc., and we could get to that, that on a future show. But um, one, of, one of the things that is common to all the ways that people depicted them is that they portrayed them in many ways with scales, feathers, wings, fish symbology, bird symbology, okay, and one way, in many cases, above all else, with a large elongated skull, okay? So, we can see all of these themes in effect in just this slide, all right? So, let's look at the first image. Okay, this is an image of uh, Sargon. Some people will look at this as a, one of the gods of the Dagonic cults of the ancient Middle East, okay? And you have a fish on the head. Now, this is exactly like a Pope's mitre, again, because this ties in with the religious institutions and traditions that were attempting to be the intermediaries between the gods and human beings. So the human, human beings were trying to make themselves look as similar to how they depicted the gods. But again, this would have been something that was mimicking or attempting to symbolize the way their head looked, okay? And again, the scales would have been symbolic of what their skin looked like. Many people have depicted them as reptilian beings. I would suggest, perhaps, that instead of outright reptilian beings, maybe these beings' skin simply was of the type of texture or um, look that we have on our elbows and knees, and that's simply what their whole outer layer of skin may have looked like. But they had skin similar to ours, maybe just a little bit tougher or rougher. And it was, you know, you see some of the remnants of that on things like, you know, the backs of our knuckles and our elbows and our knees, etc. Okay? But they were often depicted as beings with scales, like fish. Okay? Or like serpents. So they were in many cases called or alluded to as serpents. Serpent beings. And again, this is where this notion of reptilian beings come from. And I'm not saying that there may not be beings that are outrightly reptilian. I keep an open mind when it comes to any type of extraterrestrial life forms. However, what I'm saying is, more likely than not, these beings had more 
characteristics that were similar to a human being, a larger human being, but their skin was certainly different than ours. Our skin is much smoother than theirs was and probably a lot thinner. Their skin was probably tougher, like the skin of a reptile. So, hence, they were depicted like that. And since they could fly in their technologies, they had craft that could descend down to the Earth, they had craft that could orbit the Earth, they had craft that could travel interstellar distances, they were often depicted as flying beings. They were depicted as birds in many cases. So here is where you see this crossover of bird like symbolism coming into the depiction of the Anunnaki. And you see in the middle section, you have a morphing of this uh, Sumerian, Akkadian character on the left-hand side, and you have him becoming this king with this ceremonial headdress with, again, huge wings. Okay? And you'll notice they're all in the same position, they're all carrying the same similar some type of a pouch or a um, uh, jug of some kind. And they're all carrying something in their hand that looks like a cone. Okay, In the first one, in the first image to the left, you really can't see it so well. But in the other images, it's clearly some sort of a cone. All right. Now, some people have speculated that may be a piece of technology. Some others have speculated that may have been some kind of thing that was actually consumed by them that would enhance their mental capabilities. Some people also speculate that this was a symbol of their high level of intelligence, namely the awakening of the pineal gland that looks like a small pine cone like that. Okay? So this could represent that these were high, more highly evolved or knowledgeable creatures. So the pine cone is still a symbol of the, quote, Illuminati today. Illumination. The awakening of the third eye. Okay? But you see the theme repeated over and over. Birds. Bird feathers. Serpent-like birds. Serpents. Fish with scales. Beings that came from the sea and the sky. Not the land. Okay? Yes, a serpent slithers on the land, but that was largely regarding their skin texture. Okay? So, I've speculated that perhaps these beings still remain in the seas of Earth, completely uncharted territories deep within the sea. We could look into, at some point I am going to do a presentation looking into this hypothesis, okay, this theory. And I'm going to talk about why things like the naval intelligence aspect of the intelligence agencies, okay, the... Uh, Department of Naval Intelligence is really running the entire show when it comes to the cover-up of these beings and perhaps still working with them. I know it sounds like an out-there thing, you know, but we have to keep our minds open that some level of interaction with them still remains by the people who are still running the farm, who are administrating the farm here on Earth. You know, I could do a presentation looking at how the NRO, the National Reconnaissance Office, is basically a division of naval intelligence. And that's the satellite control grid system that, that is put out in Earth orbit. 
and is essentially also a weapon system. You know, you look into their occult origins and ties and into the the mission patches and how deep occult symbology is used in those. I mean, maybe I'll break some of that information out at my seminar in Connecticut. I mean, because you have to look at the dark occultic symbolism that is in NRO symbology. It's just unbelievable. It's just so blatant and out there and in your face. And the alien symbolism that's encoded into there as well. It's not even symbolism. It's direct out in the open. So, you know, we'll explore that on a future show. But, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to continue with this Cosmic Abandonment presentation next week. A lot more about our ancient origins as a slave species and our so-called God creators. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this week. You've been listening to What on Earth is Happening. We'll see you right here next week. Good night, everyone.